Sifter for the ear. News, interviews, reviews, cinema, TV, streaming, action. Hi, y'all. This is Jerry Williams, a.k.a. TV Jerry. You may remember I mentioned in February when AMC Theaters announced they were going to start seat location pricing called Sightline, which offered three options, standard, value, and preferred, charging more for the better seats. Well, they've canceled the rollout after a test because people weren't willing to sit in the front row to save a dollar, and they didn't care about paying the extra dollar for prime seats. However, they have said they're going to make the first row seats upgraded to big recliners to make it easier to watch. Usually I start the show with a teaser clip from the guest, but what you're hearing now is an original composition by David Glenn Russell. He's a composer and orchestrator for film, TV, and video games. He spent a few years in Richmond before moving to L.A. to work on such projects as Spider-Man 3, Doctor Strange, Wednesday, and numerous Star Wars series. We're going to talk about those, working with famed composers like Danny Elfman and John Williams, and lots more. They cloned Tyrone, now on Netflix. A pimp, Jamie Foxx, a whore, Tayona Paris, and a drug dealer, John Boyega, discover sci-fi subterfuge in their hood. The first third of this film features the trio in a rapid-fire, expletive-filled tribute to the exploitation films of the 70s, complete with retro looks, film grain, and even cue dots. It's often funny, with Fox continually dropping hilarious off-kilter observations. The second third introduces the conspiracy and their attempts to find the truth, which creates an interesting mystery. The final third falls apart with mediocre action scenes. What starts out with lots of satirical promise loses momentum, but it's still a raunchy romp thanks to the three leads and their delightfully outrageous characters. By the way, the definition of cue dots, in case you don't know, in the old film projection days, the film had a literal dot in the upper right corner to signal time to change reels. This became unnecessary with digital projection, but they threw it in this movie as an Easter egg just for buffs. I gave They Clone Tyrone three out of five stars. David Russell, welcome to Sifter. Tell me, when did you first discover your talent for music? Oh, wow. I played trumpet in elementary school band and I took piano lessons from a neighborhood lady for a little while when I was about 12 and then I just kind of became obsessed with music and guitar. Was this rock? The guitar part that really turned me on was Eddie Van Halen's solo in Michael Jackson's Beat It. That was <laughs> probably the catalyst for that and it just turned out that the guitar teacher that I went to was a classical guitar teacher. That's what led me to VCU and to major as a guitar major at VCU. Where did you grow up? Are you a Richmonder? I was born in Texas, grew up and we moved to Louisiana when I was about one. I went all the way through high school there. And in the second half of my senior year, my dad worked for Ethel Corporation. And so he was transferred to Virginia right after I got out of high school. So how was your life in Richmond before you actually started doing the scoring and doing the orchestration and all that stuff? How long were you around and what were you doing until that started? And how did that happen? Well, even in high school, before I got to college, I was interested in music theory 
and music composition, even though I really had no idea how to do it or what to do or anything like that. We had to, it was second year music theory, essentially. And we had to write different pieces of music in different styles throughout time. And I wrote my modern piece and both of them said, you really should think about composition. And then in the summer of 1989, and I remember this moment specifically, I saw the film Batman, Tim Burton Batman, the first uh-huh. one. Danny Elfman's music. Danny Elfman's music. Footnote. Danny Elfman started as a member of the 80s band Oingo Boingo and later went on to write notable scores, including The Simpsons Theme, Pee-wee's Big Adventure and other Tim Burton classics, Spider-Man, Batman, and lots more. If you remember how the film opens, it, it's kind of doing this and the music starting and all dark and you don't know, are we going through a cave? What is going on here? And then the logo comes up and, and then it takes off. And by the time the logo came up, I went, that's it. That's what I want to do. Wow. I want to do that. Whatever that is, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> so how did you get into it? I mean, obviously you can't just call up somebody and say, hey, let me help you. How did you get into it? After graduating at VCU, I applied at a few places. I applied at UCLA. I wanted to go to grad school. And I ended up going to the University of Miami in a program called Media Writing and Production. By then, I had already gotten into sequencers and electronics. Really, I just kind of sat at home and bought gear and put it together and said, okay, how does this work? You know, this is early 90s. So I went back to Richmond and I was working at In Your Ear. Footnote, In Your Ear is Richmond's prominent recording studio. Just kind of being an assistant engineer and learning from Carlos a lot. And sometime about 94, I said, I have to move to LA. I don't know what I'm doing. <laughs> I moved out here and I started working for a guy named John Frizzell. And that's really when I got completely immersed into the film scoring world. Surprise guest drop in. I want to back Mm -hmm. up to Richmond for a minute because somebody has dropped in to say hello to you. My wife would like me to call him by his nickname, but I'd appreciate it. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I know the name. Don't you dare, Duke. (laughs) (laughs) Now I got to know what that is. Yeah, we got Duke LaFoon, who's been on the show before talking about his career. Footnote. Duke LaFoon is a Richmonder who makes his living as an actor for stage and screen in New York. Been a billion years, David Russell. Well, the last time, I don't know if you remember, the last time we, we got together at Capitol Ale House. I do remember right, that. Right after Carrie Fisher had passed. I, I, I remember you looked at me and you just said, our princess has died. And it was really, <laughs> it was really, uh, it was really touching. Oh. that affected me profoundly now i gotta look up and see when did she pass away so i can date it so how do you know each other david and i worked on the on randy's red badge of courage yep footnote randy refers to randy strodeman a talented local theater director and the show was an original staging of the classic story the red badge of courage duke was the star and i was the music director Uh david was writing everything He was pulling his hair out. That's what I remember. He was like every orchestration, every arrangement, original music. It was all happening. Right. There was a lot of frustration that went along with that. I can imagine because we yeah. remember the history of the show, but we won't get yeah, into right. that. <laughs> we were super young at the time. Um, it was an yep. incredible summer. It was, oh, it was awesome. super exciting for me. 
And just, you know, we, we, I felt we were kind of uh, sequestered, you know, we were kind of locked yep. in together for, for three months uh, coming up with this thing. And, and I just remember how thrilling that was. That was a great summer. It really was. We'll have to, uh, when we get offline, we'll have to find out what that nickname was, because now it's driving no. me crazy. <laughs> I can't believe Janet remembers that. <laughs> of course she does. It was the first thing I said, hey, I'm going to Zoom with David Russell tomorrow. And she's like, oh, you have to. And I was like, no, he'd hate it. So I'll tell you, Lady Jerry. <laughs> well, Duke, I want to thank you for dropping in and giving him a little surprise. Jerry, David, it's so good to see you, man. Oh, man, it's great to hear hear your voice, Duke. Sorry about this strike. Uh, oh, yeah. yeah. It's, it's going to be a, it's gonna a hurt. strange new world when we come through the end of this thing, I hope. Well, enjoy your leisure time, Duke, while you're uh, on <laughs> okay. strike. Well, it's it's funny. I, I've, I've got a torn PCL ligament in my knee that's just recovering. Now I've just torn mm. one in my shoulder. Welcome to yes. older age. I know, right? Well, thanks again. Say hello to Janet for us. And I absolutely uh, will. Tell Janet I said, hey. I will. Okay. Thank you. Bye. Bye, Jerry. So now let's get back to your career. So tell me, what's the difference between a composer and an orchestrator? Strictly speaking, an orchestrator is someone who takes what the composer has written, puts it into the score. Now, in previous generations, if the composer didn't write directly into a full score, the composer would do a sketch. Footnote. Similar to creating a study or sketch before starting a full painting, a composer's sketch is the document or file that helps in the process of composing it. And this concept has been around at least since Bach, Mozart, and Beethoven. They would range from a very minimal sketch to what John Williams does, which are complete sketches. And then the orchestrator takes that and puts it into the full score, making sure it's balanced, making sure everything's working right. Uh -huh. The orchestration right. role has kind of changed in some ways in that most every one of us writes a computer. So we have a file of what we want it to sound like, all done with electronics. And the orchestrator's job is to take that, make sure it will sound like that or better, with the orchestra. With live orchestra. So we talked about orchestrator. Now, another thing I noticed that you mentioned on your resume is a sequencer programmer for like Spider-Man 3 and Turbulence and some other stuff. What does that mean? For me, when I'm writing, I write at the computer and what I create sounds pretty close to what the orchestra will sound like. For some composers, they don't write at the computer like that. They either, with Turbulence, Shirley Walker, would write at the piano and she would create a sketch. So I would take her sketch and I would program it into a sequencer to try to make it sound as close to an orchestra as I could at the time. Same with Spider-Man 3. Chris worked a little different than Shirley, but still a sketch was produced. And then I would, would be one of the, on the team that would take it and I would mock it up, make sure it lines up with picture so that we could present it to the director and get their feedback. Now, when you say sequencer, explain to people what that means. Is that just an old-fashioned synthesizer and they just call it sequencer now, or is it something else? So we have these rigs where we have all sorts of sounds at our fingertips, from cellos to flutes, piccolos, clarinets, whatever. Right. You basically just program that in so that it, when you play it back, you have all the parts of the orchestra of the sketch playing back, hopefully sounding like an orchestra, at least as close as we can get. Well, now you mentioned that with sounding like an orchestra, I'm assuming with your professional ears, you can still tell the difference between a synthesized orchestra and a live orchestra. And if you can, how? What sets it apart? 
It depends on how skilled the programmer is and how much processing and things. One of the big giveaways, and there are tricks to fool even this, is you don't hear a room sound. You don't hear it in a room. And it's a very subtle thing, but once you hear it, you go, oh, yeah, there's uh -huh. a big difference there. We can add reverb. We can even put stuff in a, a virtual room, but it's still not quite the same. And this has affected film music, in my opinion, over the last 20 years. If you're writing something that is going to stay in the box, as we like to say, in the computer, you try to basically play to the computer's strengths and avoid the computer's weaknesses. Ah, uh -huh, right. So the samples will sound really good for short sounds and percussion sounds. For other sounds, it depends on how good of the sample library you're using. It can sound really good or it can sound a little... There'll be something about it that is just synthetic. Even though it's an actual real recording, right. a digital recording of that instrument, there's also the blend of the instruments and how they, when you play everybody in a room, they blend in a way that's very difficult. And it's one of those things where I thought, oh, we're going to be, you know, in five to 10 years, we'll, we'll have it sounding exactly like an orchestra. Well, here we are 30 years later and we're closer and you can fool a lot of the people a lot of the time, but it's still not the same. Well, now and, let me ask you this. Mm -hmm. That nasty word that's been bandied around a lot, especially with these strikes. What about AI starting to create your music or make it sound more convincing? Most people I've talked to about it feel the production music world, like library tracks, people who write tracks that go into libraries that can be used right. wherever. Like the one on this show, actually, is a library okay. track. That world is probably going to be affected first. One of the revenue streams that we get as composer are royalties for the usage of our music. Sure. But to me, what that says is that there are people who want to just cut that out. And if they can hire or rent or whatever, some sort of AI to make music that sounds good enough for them and they don't have to pay any royalty, well, they're going to do it. And no. I don't know, I really don't know how you can stop that at this point, which is yeah. really depressing, but it seems to be the way. Hopefully, the custom scoring world will still be around a little longer because it's a little more specific about we're scoring to picture. It's right. not just music playing in the background. And hopefully that will be a little more difficult. But I think it's just a matter of time at this point. That may be what happens to all the creative stuff. We'll see. Yeah. It's kind of a scary new frontier, for sure. Yeah. Now, we I teased up front with some of the things that you've done more recently, like Wednesday and a whole bunch of yep. Star Wars stuff and even uh, some of the Marvel stuff. So let's pivot to some of that. First of all, you worked on so many Star Wars things. Did you actually get to work with John Williams at all? No, I, I've only met him once at an Oscar reception. He's a very, very nice man, very soft-spoken man. We get to use his themes, we get to use stuff that he's written, which is really cool. And we try to sometimes play in that sonic world that uh, is certainly a blueprint that we often follow. Tell me about some of those shows and specifically what was kind of some interesting stories about whether a challenge was or something cool about whether it was Wednesday or one of these Star Wars things or Doctor Strange. Well, Wednesday and Doctor Strange, I was working for Danny Elfman. Uh, I also worked uh, on White Noise. And I'm assuming which, you told him that he was your inspiration. I, I have not. I have really? not. I, no, I haven't. <laughs> because I, I don't want to fanboy out around him. Yeah, it's yeah. Just, 
you know, uh, I'm there to do a job. But Danny's really cool. He's really easy to work with. What I do for Danny is I do conforming, which is he'll write a cue. Cue means a piece of music. Yeah, a, a piece of music for a scene. He'll write a cue and they'll change the edit, as they always do. Right. So I will get notes from the music editor and I will take his actual file and I will adjust what he's written to the new picture. Sometimes I have to cut out some of his music and then make it still work. Sometimes I have to open up a big hole and say, Danny, they've added 30 seconds to that cue. You need to, you're going to need to write another 30 seconds for that. And then he'll decide what he wants to do with it. Sometimes he just rewrites the cue. Sometimes he goes, yeah, that's great. Perfect. Moves on. But I remember working on Strange. Footnote. Strange refers to Doctor Strange, the Marvel movie starring Benedict Cumberbatch. There's the scene where Wanda is chasing them through the sewer and I'm listening to the music and I just had a giant smile on my face. I was like, oh my God, this, it, this, this is it. This yeah. is Danny's music. This is the music that got me here that I love so much. And I have, I have my hands in his file working with what he's written. The smile on my face was just if anybody had seen me, they'd think I was a lunatic just smiling like that. So, <laughs> so I noticed that a number of these things are recorded, the Prague Orchestra. You don't ever get to go to Prague with that, do you, or do you? We don't do that anymore. I have been to Prague. I've been to where they record, but we they weren't recording my stuff that day. We record in Prague. We record in Budapest. Sometimes we record here. Is it because is those are cheaper over there or is it because they are really good orchestras it's because they're cheaper the way composer pay can be structured is two major ways one is called a creative fee and the other is an all-in thing with an all-in the composer has to pay for everything out of whatever money they're given aha uh -huh. okay that also means that if they do it union they'll have to sign the assumption agreement which means they're the composer is on the hook for whatever happens to the show to pay musicians again. For residuals or whatever. Wow. Wow. Right. Right. So that makes it really difficult for a composer. That's not what we do. There, there's no what we call back end if you record in Prague or Budapest or they do uh, Macedonia. Or even if you record in London, even though their union, they actually, I believe, they have a rate where you can pay them a little more up front and they, there's no back end. Uh -huh. They've never done that here in L.A., so that's one of the reasons. Your original question, we don't generally go anymore because we can listen. To, I can sit here in my studio and listen to the live recording and give them notes right away. I can even see them. You know, it's like being in the other room. Sure. It's not quite as good as being there, but it's almost as good and saves a lot of time and money and stuff. Let me just list some of these. Ghost Rider, Drag Me to Hell, The Grudge 1 and 2, The Uninvited... Those are all scary movies. Is that something yes. you dig or how did you end up in that world? Well, I do like writing scary music. I would love to do a horror film. Why? The, all those films was when I was working for Christopher Young, who is a master at writing horror music, an absolute master. Footnote. Christopher Young is a composer who's written such horror classics as Sinister, Drag Me to Hell, The Grudge, Hellraiser, and Urban Legend. What's the biggest challenge? Because I see, I love horror movies and I've seen a lot mm. of them. And of course, the worst thing is, you know, okay, the, 
it's building the music's building the music's building okay get ready for a big scare and right. we hate that because obviously the music shouldn't be telling us those things how do you work around that so that you don't telegraph what's coming i think it's a two-part thing one with the music and one with the storytelling because you have the false ones of those where the music builds and then nothing really happens right and you release the tension and then maybe that's when it happens is right. after you've released that uh, sometimes with the music it should just be creepy and just set a tone and enhance what you see visually in a dark abandoned house or whatever it is. Right. Sometimes you have to let the sound effects, maybe they want to go with sound effects that will provide that. But I think when you do the sleight of hand trick and you lull people into a sense, oh, here it comes. And then it doesn't, you do that a couple of times. They're like, oh, here, yeah, yeah this, right, this is right, going to right. be a fake out now. And then when does the cat jump out of the window, right? Or jump through right. the window because the cats are the, the cheapest gag out there. <laughs> Yes, they are. You open a cabinet and a cat jumps out. Yeah, like, yeah. Yep. <laughs> so you you did compose for one video game, Legends 007. How is that different? I've done two video games. I did one back in 97 called uh, Disney's Math Quest with Aladdin, which was a PC game for kids. It's different in a few ways. Because it's interactive, you often don't know how long something is going to go for, right? When When you're working with a film... You know, okay, this cue is going to go for a minute and 32 seconds. Right. And you do know that some in video games, we have, there's the cinematics, the cut scenes and stuff like that, which are more scored as if they're scenes from a movie. But then you have the end game stuff and you have to kind of work. Sometimes you have to write things that can loop back on itself. I was going to say, because you hear that sometimes, right. the same yep. piece of music. In the old days, it was a little tiny, short, like a little five-second right. loop, and you'd go crazy after a while. Exactly, it, because they didn't have much memory in the game, and they couldn't fill it with too much music. That's not so much a problem now. And we do some things in terms of planning out keys so that we, we're not in A here and then E flat over here, and because that's not going to probably work very well. Right. So you do plan out the keys that you're in and where you start and where you end and what can go from one to another so that it helps the people doing the audio integration, how they can basically crossfade from one piece to another. And it still works. So what are you working on right now? Well, we're working on Ahsoka. Footnote. Ahsoka is a new live action series on Disney Plus about the female character that's a spinoff from Star Wars Clone Wars. It's in the Star um, Wars world. It's in the Star Wars world. It'll be on Excuse Disney me, let me Plus. restate that. It's in the Star Wars universe. <laughs> yes, it's in the Star Wars universe. Exactly. It premieres on August 23rd. Oh, great. So just a little over a month. They're going to show two the first two episodes of the eight-episode series. We're also finishing up The Bad Batch, season three, which will be the end of The Bad Batch. Footnote. Bad Batch is yet another animated series in the Star Wars universe. And you're actually composing music for those. You're not orchestrating yep. or any of that nope. stuff. It's your baby now. Great, great, great. Well, uh, yeah, I'm on the team. I'm one of many who compose, but yes, I am writing music for those shows, yes. Speaking of writing, do you ever just write and perform for fun? Do you ever get out and just play for people, or do you not have time for that anymore? I'm a guitarist, so I don't play piano very well. Did you ever nail that uh, solo? Oh, beat it? No. No. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's actually a kind of difficult solo and Is just it? the way eddie plays i don't play like that right. but my girlfriend's a cellist and we've been thinking about playing some classical guitar cello stuff and trying to do that more which i'd, I'd like to do 
when you're watching something else that you didn't have anything to do with, how conscious are you of the music or do you just get sucked into the story and everything else and ignore it? Or is it always in your consciousness? It's almost always in my consciousness. Yeah, it, it, yeah. it can be a problem at times. It, there are a few occupational hazards in composing for film, and that's one of them. The other one is you hear something in your head and it won't leave. And, oh, earworms. Know, whether yeah. You, yeah, whether you've written it or someone else, someone else has written it, and you go to bed hearing it, you hear it in your dreams, and you wake up. It's just, yeah. it can drive you crazy. Yeah, yeah, I've been there, believe me. So when yeah. you're not working on one of these Star Wars things, what do you like to watch? I watch uh, I watch a lot of YouTube these days. I, I actually like reviews of bad movies. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I've got a few of those. Yeah. I watch a lot of guitar stuff, playing right. guitar pieces right. and things like that. I just went and saw Dial of Destiny. That's the first movie I'd seen in the theater since... The Last Jedi, I think. So. And that's disappointing because it won't that good. It was it was okay. It's not anywhere near exactly. the first three. It's not Raiders. It's not even close to Raiders, which nope. is about a perfect movie. Yeah. It's not even as good as Temple of Doom, which is I, I think is still a lot of fun. Well, David, I want to thank you for this. It's been fascinating to hear about some of your cool work, and we will look thank forward you. to hearing more in the future, literally. Yes, literally, hopefully. Yep, and uh, I appreciate it so much, Jerry. It's great to meet you and great to talk to you. That was David Glenn Russell, who's a composer and orchestrator for film, TV, and video games. There's a link to his website with samples of his music and lots more on the webpage for this show at TV Jerry. Coming soon in theaters. Haunted Mansion, Disney's latest attempt to turn a theme park attraction into a movie, starring Rosaria Dawson, Jamie Lee Curtis, Jared Leto, and Owen Wilson, among others. Talk to me. A group of friends uses an embalmed hand to conjure spirits, but things go expectedly bad. Theater Camp. The title sums it up, and the cast includes Ben Platt and Caroline Aaron. A Fire. This German import takes place on vacation with a mysterious woman and a fast-approaching forest fire. The Baker. Ron Perlman stars as the titular cook who must smuggle a giant loaf of bread filled with drugs to save his son's life. The First Slam Dunk. This animated film from Japan is about a teen who struggles to become a basketball star. Sympathy for the Devil. This new one starring Nicolas Cage is a mystery thriller that puts Joel Kinnaman in danger. And coming next Wednesday, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem, a new animated comedy from Seth Rogen and his frequent collaborator Evan Goldberg, with voices from John Cena, Paul Rudd, Ice Cube, and Maya Rudolph. TV and streaming. Twisted Metal on Peacock. Anthony Mackie is the delivery driver between walled cities in a post-apocalyptic wasteland created by the minds behind Deadpool and Zombieland. Special Ops Lioness just started on Paramount+. Plus. This is a new series from Taylor Sheridan, the creator of Yellowstone, and it stars Zoe Saldana and Nicole Kidman in yet another espionage thriller. Happiness for Beginners on Netflix. Luke Grimes and Ellie Kemper star in this romantic comedy that starts with a wilderness survival course. The Beanie Baby on Apple. Zach Galifianakis and Elizabeth Banks star as the creators of the Beanie Baby phenomenon. Good Omens 2 on Amazon. David Tennant and Michael Sheen return as earthly reps of heaven and hell. This Fool returns to Hulu for a second season. Dark Winds returns to AMC for a second season. The final episodes of The Witcher with Henry Cavill start on Netflix. You can subscribe to this podcast on all the usual platforms, or you can visit TV Jerry, click on the podcast tab, and there's a link. 
Next week, you've probably seen her but didn't know her name. Coco Brown is a Virginia-born comic who's been in lots of TV shows and movies. She'll be here next week for lots of fun. This is Jerry Williams, and as an added treat, here's an excerpt from another track by David G. Russell. For more Sister, including literally thousands Thousands of reviews, reviews. visit tvjerry.com. That's a wrap.